Father, we come before you and we are so thankful that we have this opportunity now to uh, sit in this peaceful surrounding, nothing to bother us, and we have your word open in our hands. But Father, more so, I pray that you will, by your Spirit, speak to each heart that is here in a way that only you know we need to be challenged and convicted and reminded and encouraged. Father, please speak your words of life to us. Enable us to hear. Help us to be changed. and Help us to walk in light of your truth, we pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as uh, Nora was recounting this story, reading from John chapter 5, you see that it takes place uh, at a pool called Bethesda. Okay, and it's a pool that's surrounded by five covered colonnades. It's like this roof structure with, with columns, you know, so five roofs uh, surrounding this pool. And for many years, the scholars who studied, you know, the Gospel of John, they, they came to the conclusion that this, this account in chapter 5 is something that John made up. Okay, I mean, he's, uh, he's trying to tell us something that's true about Jesus, but, but this thing never really happened. Okay, you know why they thought that way? Because in all that they know about Jerusalem, I mean, all their archaeological findings, there was no such pool near any sheep gate that had five roofs. Okay, so they thought, okay, I mean, as, as much as we know about Jerusalem, as much as we've dug out, there's no such place, okay? So John must be, you know, uh, inventing this story, but he's trying to tell us something that's true about Jesus, but he's inventing this story. And then you know what happened? Then they dug enough and they found the pool. So it, it does exist, okay? It's just that they, they didn't dig in the right place. So my point in telling you this story is that John is recounting a true incident. This healing at the pool really happened. This conversation uh, with, with the Jewish leaders really happened. John is at pains to give you evidence of what Jesus said, what he did, so that we may come to see who he is. And so Jesus was at this pool, and he saw this man who had been an invalid. Uh, most likely it means he has been paralyzed for 38 years. Now, as you read this, there is little description given of the man, but you just imagine, okay, someone who has been paralyzed for 38 years. Okay, if you met him, uh, you would see that his head would be the normal size, but the, maybe the lower half of his body, because the muscles have not been used, you know, it would be, uh, small and there would be disproportionate, you know, his, his, he would look disproportionate. Because he's been lying there. He's been paralyzed for 38 years. And Jesus comes and he heals this man. Okay, so just imagine, okay, this, this person with a normal sized head, but the rest of his body is atrophied because, you know, the, the muscles haven't been used. And then at the word of Jesus, this man gets up. I mean, if you were there, if you passed by on your way to the market and you saw this man every day and then you saw him at the word of Jesus getting up, I mean, it would be the story you would tell at family dinners for many years. But then, why do the Jews react this way? You see, when the man gets up, 
John tells us in verse 8, Jesus said to him, Pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. And the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. So this, this Jewish leaders, they didn't go, Wow! Hey, you're walking, what happened? You know, they, none of that. They go, hey, hello, it's the Sabbath. How can you be carrying a mat? Now, okay, I must give you some background information. Hundreds and hundreds of years before this incident, God gave commands to the people of Israel. And one of the commands is that on the Sabbath day, which is a Saturday, they were to cease from work. They were to stop working and rest one day. Okay? Now, hundreds of years after that, Jewish leaders, you know, in an attempt to make sure that people kept this Sabbath law, they began to erect uh, laws surrounding it. So they would say, okay, on the Sabbath day, now what constitutes work? Okay, then they began to come up with numerous laws. And one of which is, you know, on the Sabbath day, you must not look in the mirror. Okay, because if you look in the mirror, you might see white hair, like I am increasingly prone to do, and then you might be tempted to pluck it out. And plucking it out would be work. And then on a Sabbath day, in your house, you can lift up, you know, a load, maybe up to shoulder level. But outside your house, you can only lift it up to elbow level. And so they had all these rules defining what was work, what was not work. And so this man, on the Sabbath day, as he was cured, and the one who cured him say, pick up your mat, and he picked up the mat. Oh, hey, you, you the man who has been paralyzed for 38 years, I don't care about that, but how can you pick up your mat on your shoulder like that? It is the Sabbath. You see, so what had, be, what had been a command, wisely given that out of seven days, God tells us one day rest. If you are a farmer, Work six days, farm six days, but on, on the Saturday, don't farm, rest, worship God. What was a very good command became convoluted and, and corrupted to this point that they see this amazing miracle and they cannot rejoice in it. Instead, they, they, they nitpick and they say, how can you break this law carrying the mat on your shoulder like that outside your house? So he had come to this. And the man said, well, the man who healed me, he was the one who commanded me to pick up my mat and walk. And so the Jewish leaders, oh, okay, okay, who is this man who commanded you to break the Sabbath? And so they identify Jesus. And so John tells us in verse 16, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. And in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. So they find Jesus and they say, you are the Sabbath breaker. Okay, Not only do you command the man to pick up the mat, you are also healing on the Sabbath. Okay, And they began to persecute him as someone who broke the Sabbath. Now the reason why I go into the background is to help you see the way Jesus defended himself. 
Because if you were there, you might have been tempted to say, hey, hey, come on, come on. Let's, let's, let's open the scripture. Let's open to where God gave that command. Let's look at it. Exodus 20. Okay? It, 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 it's about if you are a farmer, you farm six days, you don't farm on the seventh day. That, that, that's, that's what God means. This, this man who was healed, I mean, he's not like this professional mover of mats, right? That he's moving mats six days and now on the seventh day he's moving a mat trying to earn more money. That's not what's happening. So, Jesus could have defended himself by going back to the law and saying what is the right interpretation of the law. And that would have been, you know, something you and I would have done. Something reasonable. But what does Jesus do instead? How does he defend himself instead? He says, my father is always at his work to this very day. Now, when he said my father, they would understand that he's talking about God. And they understand that God is working even on the Sabbath. Because if God stopped working on the Sabbath, on a, like if every day, every Saturday, God stopped working, then the whole universe would, you know, collapse. And then on Sunday, he's got to recreate it again, you know. So, so they understand that God works on the Sabbath. And so the, the Jewish leaders, when they debated this, they would go, okay, uh, because the universe is like God's house, the work he's doing is not raising anything above his own shoulder. Ah, so, so it's okay. So God is working, but it's not, you know, uh, raising it above his shoulder. So he, he's sustaining the universe. That's fine. God is working. So Jesus appeals to this, what they all agree, that just as God, just as his father is working, so too I am working. So do you, do you get it? He doesn't defend himself by going back to the right interpretation of the law. Instead, he defends himself by drawing attention to his identity. That just as God has the right to work on the Sabbath, I too can work. If God can work, I can work. That's what he's saying. And that's why you see in verse 18, the Jewish leaders understand it. So John tells us, verse 18, For this reason they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They understood that Jesus is claiming for himself divine prerogative. He is claiming for himself just as God has the right to work I too can work. And he's making himself, calling himself someone who is equal with God. Now, when, when you see the phrase here, equal with God, you might be tempted to think that the Jewish leaders understand he's talking about, okay, you know, um, God is three in one. There's the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They, they, they have some idea of the Trinity. But okay, that's not the case. Rather, when they see and hear Jesus saying this, they are thinking, okay, God has the right, and you are claiming to be this other God who's equal with this God who also has the right. See, this another God who has the right to also work on the Sabbath. That's what they're thinking. You're making yourself on equal status with God, such that you're claiming to be another God. So Jesus obviously does not think that way because he also believes in one God. And so he 
in verse 19 to 23, clarifies. So we read in verse 19, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by Himself. He can do only what He sees His Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So immediately Jesus corrects them. He's saying, no, no, I'm not this other God who has, you know, my own initiative, my own agenda. No, no, very much I am subordinate. I am following. I am obeying God the Father. And so whatever the Father does, I do. I do nothing on my own. And whatever the Father does, He shows me and that I do. Okay, so he is correcting the understanding that he is not a second God, but he is a son of the Father, and he does whatever the Father does. Okay, now this actually tells us a lot about why, like what we sung, Jesus can be the way, the truth, uh, and the life. Why he can give us and tell us the truth about God. Because he says here, right? I do only what I see the Father doing. And whatever the Father does, I do. I do nothing on my own. Okay, so Jesus is saying 100% of the time, I am doing what the Father shows me. Okay, I want to help you appreciate the significance of this. So let's imagine that instead of Jesus saying 100% of the time, I'm doing what the Father does, let's say he only says, okay, I am the best, okay? I am 99%, okay? 1% of the time, I do my own thing, that's reasonable, but, but hey, I tell you, 99% of the time, I do what the Father does. Now, would that be good enough for you, you think? If, you know, if someone came and he said, okay, I'm revealing God, but 99% of the time, that's God being revealed. Because, you know, whatever the Father does, I do. You know, so 99% of the time, that's what's happening. But what, just 1%. Okay, just 1% of the time, I'm doing my own thing. Okay, but 99%, I mean, if students here get 99% for all their tests, they would be very happy already. 99%. Would you be happy with that? Would that be a reliable witness? What do you think? Anyone? Anyone happy? Anyone happy with 99%? I mean, is that good enough for you? Okay, okay, some might think it might be. 99 is not bad. Okay, but what if I change the scenario and I said, <clears throat> what if your water supply, okay, 99% of the time gave you fresh, pure, clean water, but just 1% of the time it delivered poisonous water that would kill you? Okay, not just make it 0.1% of the time it would deliver poison. Now, would you still call that a reliable water supply? No, right? Because you never know. I mean, when I'm drinking now, is that the 99% or is that, you know, the, or is this poison? It becomes an unreliable water supply. So likewise, if someone came and he said, okay, I reveal 99% of the time I'm revealing God, it is not a reliable witness because you never know which is the 1% that is not Revealing of God, which is the 1% that is of himself and not of God. But you see, Jesus does not say even 99.9%. He says 100% of the time, I do nothing 
on my own. Whatever the Father shows me, I do what the, whatever the Father does. 100% of the time, He is revealing God. That's why in this Gospel, John is so at pains to help us see that this God is revealed. This God, the God that made us, that created all this, He is revealed. He is made known by Jesus because 100% of the time, Jesus is doing what the Father does. So when we see Him, when we see His actions, when we hear His words, He is revealing the Father to us. And so Jesus goes on to say, verse 20, The Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does. Yes, He will show Him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. And He goes on to tell us what are the two greater works. He says in verse 21, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. So that's the first greater work, the giving of life. And then in verse 22, the second greater work. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Okay, so he singles out two specific work that the Father has given him to do. Okay, two things that the Father shows him, but not only shows him, but has entrusted to Jesus to do. And it is the work of giving life and the work of judgment. Now, all the people there, they understood one thing. That when it comes to the giving of life, when it comes to the making of judgment, this is work that only God does. Hey, it's not work, it's not a task, it's not a responsibility shared by uh, angels or you know given to kings or whatever. The work of giving life and of making judgment, they all understood this is something that is God's work. God does it and only God does it. And so at this, at this conversation, I mean, can you imagine there's this group of Jewish leaders and they're talking to this human being. Jesus, this man, I mean, he's dressed the way everyone else is commonly dressed. He's probably perspiring. He's pro- he probably does have bad breath. But here is this human being saying, I am the one now who has the right to give life. I am the one now who has the right to make judgment. So, I mean, you... You get what Jesus is trying to say? I mean, you must apply the, the duck principle. The duck principle is if it looks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, if it walks like a duck, it must be a duck. And so Jesus is saying, hey, I do the work of God. I give life. I make judgment. So if this person is there, in front of you saying that he does the work that only God does, he is making a very clear and unambiguous claim that he is God standing before them. Okay, this human being, like I said, two arms, two legs, 
saying that he is God. Now we need to be clear that Jesus is making this claim. Now, if you were there, listening in, what would be a reasonable response? What would be a logical, understandable response? Okay, I, I think there are three. A reasonable, understandable response is that you go, this guy is crazy. This is, this is, you know, who let him out of the Jerusalem, uh, you know, MPH, you know, Mad People's Hospital? I know, this is a lunatic on the, on the run, and then he's, he's thinking that he's God. Okay, now, do you agree with me? That would be a reasonable response. I mean, someone comes up to you and say, ah, I'm God, I'm God, I'm your creator. I mean, okay, I mean, you go, hey, this guy, right? That is a reasonable response. The second reasonable response is that you go, okay, this guy, this guy, he's too smooth. Okay, he's too slick. I mean, he doesn't look crazy to me. I think he must be this genius liar. Okay, he, he's, he's trying to deceive people. You know, with his words and then maybe with his magic tricks, he is this liar, this deceiver. Right? That would be another appropriate, reasonable response. Do you know what is the third and remaining reasonable, understandable response? There are only three, right? So either you hear someone talking like that, you go, okay, crazy man, or you go, con man. What is the last response that's open to you, that's reasonable? The last response is that based on all that you know about him, the things that he's done, the things that you have witnessed, you go fall down at his feet and worship him because he is your God. Now, these are the only three options open to you. That you dismiss him as a crazy man, that you avoid him as a deceiving con man, or you fall at his feet and worship him because he is the Christ, he is the Son of God, God in the flesh standing before you. These are the only three responses open to you. What would be an unreasonable and unwarranted response is to go, ah, you are a good prophet or you are a good teacher. No, that would be an unreasonable response because Jesus, he's not there saying, come, come, I'm just a good teacher. And then you can, you know, listen to his teaching as if that's all he said. No, no, no. He has said that I am the son of God. I am God in the flesh. I have the right to give life. I have the right to judge. So either you dismiss him as a crazy man Avoid him as a deceiving con man or you fall at his feet and worship him as God. These are the only three responses open to you. You must not condescend and say, just good teacher. Because as C.S. Lewis has said, he has not left that option open to us. So, at whatever stage of the journey you are at, Would you consider carefully the evidence that we have of what this man said and did? 
I mean, just, just, just look and consider the evidence objectively. Right? Don't dismiss it as fairy tales or whatever. Just, just come and objectively read it. And come and see that the things that this man did and said caused the people who followed him to so count their lives as nothing and they went against the might of the Roman Empire such that the church survives even to this day. Okay, I mean, I'm just saying there's evidence here that you need to look at. And as you look at the things that he said and did, does this sound more like a man who is a raving lunatic? Does this sound like a man who is this, you know, deceiving con man? Or does the evidence point yeah, that this may be Christ, the Son of God, come in the flesh so that He can reveal the way, the truth, and the life to us? <clears throat> so the the two greater works that Jesus says he does is the giving of life and the making of judgment. Now I wonder what comes to your mind when you hear judgment. Okay? It's probably not a favorite dinner topic of many people. Like, you know, we had reunion dinner last night. And I promise you, there were very, very little conversations going on about judgment, even though I tried to introduce it, okay? Um, <clears throat> you see, the thing about <clears throat> judgment is a funny thing. On one hand, there are people who, as they look at all the injustices that they see in the world, you know, as, as they see, you know, like, I, I you know, we received a WhatsApp uh, text this morning and then Alina was telling us this missionary in Japan has a fourth stage cancer. Right? I mean, I read it rapidly. Yeah. And, and he said, I mean, and, and you're going, why is that happening? I mean, here he is, he gave up a promising job, you know, went to Japan. You know, Japan sounds exciting, like, unless you really have to live there and learn the language and like the people. I mean, so, so, so he's a missionary, brought his family over there and, and, you know, fourth stage cancer, what's happening? And then on the other hand, you see, you know, uh, dictators who, who ruin the lives of millions and they live to a ripe old age, die in their sleep. And so people look at this and then they, they, no, I, I, there must be justice. There must be judgment beyond the grave. You know, there must be something to, to make sure all the accounts are squared. Because if it just, if it's just like this, it's, it's, it's pointless. What's, what's happening? You know, the good die young and then the, the evil, they prosper, what's happening? So, so there is, I think, for people who think about this, a yearning that, that this must not be, that, 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 that there must be a judgment. But in thinking about this, I think those same people avoid facing up to the fact that if there is judgment, if there is this, you know, event that will square all the accounts, okay? then there must be a judge who will do it. And entertaining the idea that there is a judge is more... Um, people, people don't tend to do that. Because if you entertain the idea that there is going to be a judge, it means that the judge that will judge 
Adolf Hitler, Saddam Hussein, you know, those dictators, Kim Jong-il, etc. He will also be a judge who will judge you and I. And we are more uncomfortable with that. Right? We, we, we yearn for things to be squared off, you know, even our justice to be done. But for there to be a judge, and a judge who will also not only judge me, uh, but also judge Saddam Hussein, that becomes more uncomfortable. But this is precisely what Jesus is saying. You look at what he says in verse 30. Sorry, verse 28. <clears throat> he says, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. And those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. So he is saying that I am the judge. And on that day when my judgment happens, every single human being will be raised from their graves. They will stand before me and I will decide based on their works. Okay? who has done good, who has done evil, there will only be two groups. One who will have an eternal destiny of life and then another who will have an eternal destiny of facing my judgment, my condemnation. Now, that is, I mean, if you really think about it, and when you consider the fact that, yes, Saddam Hussein, maybe he did more evil than you, but you yourself, your, you know, your underwear is not exactly clean. Right? No one is able to rock up before this judge with, okay, I've scored 100. I've done everything that is right. And therefore have that, you know, that assurance that, yeah, 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 I've done all that is good. I will have life. Every one of us, if you think about it, you know by your own standards, you are not perfect. And so when you face up to this judge whose standards are even higher, it is a frightening thought. But the good news of Christianity, the good news of what Jesus came to tell us, you see there in verse 24. He says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged. You see what he's saying? Okay, he's, he's saying that he is the one, he is the life giver, and he's able to give life. Yes, he is a judge, and he will, at the end, on the last day, be making that judgment, separating people left and right. But he says, now, if you hear my words and believe him who sent me. Now, that's a bit strange. Right? Why does he say, I mean, you would expect him to say, hear my words and believe me. Right? What does he say? Hear my words and believe him who sent me. Right? Because of what we said earlier. That Jesus, because he is 100% of the time doing what the Father does, he does not do anything of his own, he is revealing the Father. And so if you look at him, if you see his works, if you see the God that he reveals, you're believing in the right God, the true God. So hear his words and therefore believe in the God he has revealed, who is the true God. Ah, then, he says, you will not be judged, you will have crossed over from death to life. Now the question is why? Why is it that we 
in hearing his words? Why is this the way that he gives life? Because of what he says in that little phrase in verse 24. Believes him, believing in God, God who sent him. Did you get that? So here, Jesus is talking about, okay, there will come this future day, okay, when I will judge. But as he's talking to these Jewish leaders, he's saying, but today, this time, I have been sent by the Father. And the question is, sent to do what? And it's not a mystery because if you just read far enough into the Gospel of John enough, you will see that this one who claimed to be God, this one who claimed to be the life giver, this one who claimed to be the judge, found himself hanging on a cross, suffering, dying, bleeding. And the reason for that is because he tells us, it is not because of my sins that I find myself on this cross being punished by God. But it is because of the sins of the world. The judge came, not just to issue judgment. But the first time this judge came, he came to take judgment. The judgment that rightly belongs on you and I on the cross. Jesus takes our judgment. So that he would be this judge on the last day who is not only filled with the authority to judge, but the people that he has given life to. The people who have heard his words and believe, yes, you, you are the son of God and you by your death, you have cleansed me, you have taken all my sin, the judgment that should have fallen on me, you have taken it. Those who have done that, he can, he can give them life. Give them an eternal destiny of life because he's making that right judgment. Yes, the, the work that I accomplish, you have benefited from. There will be no miscarriage of justice on that last day. The judge will judge rightly and completely. And so he says to us now, if you hear his words, if you believe who he is and what he says he has come to do and, and, and that his work on the cross is sufficient to cleanse you from all your sins, past present and future, and that because of His righteousness that's now given to you, you are reconciled, you are forgiven, you have life. Do you hear the voice of the Son of God calling you, speaking to you? I pray that you do. Let's pray together. Father, who can come to these words and not have certain amount of doubt or skepticism? But Father, it is you and you alone who can lift up the veil from our eyes to see the truth. And I pray, Father, that for many of us here, you will do that as your word has been proclaimed that you reveal your truth, the truth about your Son, what you sent Him to do to us. 
that we will hear and there will be those who today cross over from death to life. Thank you, Father. Amen.